Welcome to It Means What It Means. Today's guest, our first guest, is Sophia R.C. Johnson. She's a doctoral candidate at Cambridge, currently in Germany as a visiting scholar. We'll be discussing her article in the December 2022 issue of the Journal of Biblical Literature, entitled Kingship and Covenant, Reconsidering the Oath of David and Jonathan. We do depart from the article a bit, as I really just wanted to hear what she had to say and let her thoughts and work, broadly speaking, drive where the conversation went. This episode is also going to serve right now on this front bit as an introduction to the podcast. I thought about doing a separate episode, but the idea of subjecting people to listening solely to me talk for 30 to 60 minutes, if not longer, just didn't sit well. So I'm going to give you a quick background of this podcast, how it came to be, where I intend it to go, what I want it to consist of, that kind of thing. So like many people in the United States, especially in the American South, I grew up in evangelical churches. And in my teenage years, I went from just reading the Bible in English, being interested in the stories, trying to do my best to live the life of a contemporary American Christian. And then I found out theology made things more interesting. So I started to read theology, which approached things in a more systematic way. And then, later on, closer to 20, visited uh, liturgical churches. First a Catholic church, eventually Episcopal and Presbyterian churches that had a little bit more structure to how they worshipped than we had in the Southern Baptist mainly Southern Baptist background that I had grown up in. And I started to really have a distaste for topical sermons. The, you know, for the next three months, we're going to talk about money and there's cherry picked Bible verses all through every sermon. There's no real unified approach to the Bible. Just somebody goes through a concordance and finds the word money and organizes those verses in a way that says what, Dave Ramsey or whatever other figure in American subcultural Christianity has to say about money. And I started to realize around that time, as I developed a distaste for topical sermons, that systematic theology wasn't really that great. A friend of mine and I were both kind of having that realization at the same time. Uh, That was maybe 2004, 2003 time frame. And I started to find people like N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann, who are no less theologians, but they do seem to have more of a concern with some of the background of the Bible as a text. And I started to read the bibliographies in their books and find their sources, primary and secondary, for the things that they were saying. And I think around that time, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I found in a Mardell in Oklahoma City, in the bargain section, the clearance section, a book by William Deaver, I believe it was, Who Were the Early Israelites and Where Did They Come From? And the idea that there was any more nuance than it says this in the Pentateuch, and that's what it is, was fascinating to me. And it may have been a world-changing 
experience to read a book like that. Around that same time, I read a book by Bruce Metzger called Breaking the Code, Understanding the Book of Revelation. And in his response or explanation of Revelation 1, 12 through 16, he says this, How shall we understand this description of the heavenly Christ? It may seem paradoxical to say that the description does not mean what it says. It means what it means. And that, for someone who had grown up in 80s, 90s, early 2000s, evangelical American subcultural Christianity was fascinating. I think I had already read Mark Knoll's The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, and I was finding ways to break the training I had received as an evangelical Christian, an evangelical Christian leaning toward fundamentalist, to find more academic, intellectual, well-thought-out ideas and understandings of the faith that I had at that time. So 2011, that same friend that I mentioned earlier who was becoming disaffected with theology and becoming more enchanted in biblical studies, finished his master's in Hebrew, and he came back to town, was living nearby, and I suggested, what if we do a podcast where you're a subject matter expert and I'm just some guy who's curious? And we were both enthusiastic about that. But then life happened, uh, both being in our 20s at that time, mid to late 20s. Um, we were not able to do that. Life just took us where life takes you. When you're at that age, family changes and things like that. So we never did do that. And then in 2020, COVID came and kept me at home when I wasn't at work. And I would find myself reading things, essays, watching lectures, reading books, and having conversations with this same friend. And he brought up, when questions about Paul would come up, or Pauline literature, he brought up uh, Douglas Campbell, who was someone I would not really been aware of because I'm not in biblical studies. I really only know what I find and what I read and what I'm told. And having these conversations that there were, it was this guy out there who's digging into all of this historical stuff. It was really fascinating to me. So I said, what if we, you know, that podcast we talked about years ago, what if we do that? By this point, it's probably 2021. So it's been 10 years since we both had this enthusiasm. And he said, no, I'm not interested. I've done a podcast. It's a lot of work. I don't want to do another one. So I spent a little bit of time being bummed about that and then I realized it's a little more circuitous it's not quite as simple as sitting down with a friend but if I find a book or an article or an essay or a lecture I could just reach out to the person who produced that thing you know read it make my notes and go to the author and ask to do an interview so that I'm still sitting down with a subject matter expert so I figured I would take that idea of it doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. Pushing back on the idea that, you know, every one of us in this country can pick up an English translation of the Bible and get some understanding. But how holistic, how complete is that understanding? Not just because it's a translation, but because we're going to read our cultural understanding, our time, into that text. And so that really is the objective here. So in preparation, I picked up 
the Oxford Handbook of Biblical Studies to kind of get an idea of what should my direction be. So the following is a list of things that is essentially the table of contents from the Oxford Handbook of Biblical Studies, but these are the areas and the subjects that I'm interested in looking at in this podcast. Archaeology, ancient Near Eastern studies, specifically Mesopotamia and Egypt, Qumran studies, study of the Greco-Roman world, diaspora and rabbinic Judaism, language and the translation of the Hebrew Bible, Apocrypha and the New Testament, textual transmission of the Hebrew Bible, Apocrypha and the New Testament, historical and cultural study of the Bible, institutions of the Hebrew Bible and New Testament, priesthood, temples, and sacrifice, law in the Hebrew Bible, scribes and synagogues, movements, genres of the Hebrew Bible and New Testament, which include prophecy, apocalyptic, wisdom, novella, gospels, and letters, composition of the Bible, which constitutes the growth of the Hebrew Bible, Apocrypha, and New Testament, authors, books, and readers in the ancient world, methods in biblical scholarship, which consists of archaeology, which I know we've already covered, but to think of it as a way of doing biblical scholarship rather than just archaeology on its own is interesting. So methods in biblical scholarship, archaeology, textual criticism, form, source, and redaction criticisms, rhetorical and new literary criticism, feminist criticism and related aspects, social, political, and ideological criticism, the interpretation of the Bible, Hebrew Bible and New Testament theology, biblical theology, the Bible in ethics, Jewish interpretation of the Bible, uh, the authority of the Bible, which consists of canon, fundamentalisms, and historical criticisms of the Bible. So those are really just some of the areas. I feel that I am at liberty to add things as I want, but I will cover no fewer than those things. It's something that I'm really excited to do as a hobby for now. So I've kind of roughly drawn out in my head what I think the phases of this podcast should be. And right now, it's a hobby. I'm going to do it when I can do it. Eventually, I would like to produce content at a regular pace. But for the moment, the plan that I had initially set out with was to prepare a bank of episodes that I would start releasing next year. And that just didn't sit well with me. I knew that getting out there and doing this as soon as possible was the best way to go about it. Because I've had the Twitter account for a while and I've been afraid to engage with people because I'm not producing any content myself. And so there's nothing that anyone can use to judge me by. And I didn't like that because I know that that's going to be something that's going to limit people's desire to engage with me. So essentially what I'm committing to is to be neither an expert in biblical studies nor in podcasting. So if the sound here is rough, that's on me. If the editing is rough, that's on me. Um, And there are thresholds that I'll meet before I'm able to actually make things sound of a higher quality. Hopefully I'll be able to build an audience that will justify maybe bringing someone in to do some of the technical aspects of this. But it is kind of a responsive thing where I'm not trying to be all that proactive. The proactive part for me is going out there and finding people to talk to. The technical stuff I feel like can be handled later. So now that I've given you an idea of where I want this podcast to go, I'll put the negative part in. Where I don't want this podcast going, 
uh, I don't want it to be thought that I'm affiliated with any denomination or theological tradition. I have a background, religiously and theologically, and it's not really something that plays into my thinking that much anymore. I'm sure it contributes to biases that I'm not aware of, because this isn't a world that I've been in for quite some time, and I'm not in it that deeply, but my intention here is to find something and ask experts questions in their areas of expertise, not to shill for my group or my cause or my ideology. I'm not interested in devotional or ministerial concerns. I understand that there are people out there who are, and that's fine, where they can find their needs met with this podcast. I welcome them, but critiques on me not meeting their needs or concerns are going to be heard and mostly discarded. I'm just not that interested in that. This will not be a book club. My commitment to you, at least for the moment, is that I am the only non-expert on this show. So some quick promotional concerns as they stand. I don't have sponsors, but there are people I want to give a shout out to, or organizations, I guess. So Riverside. Seeing a Riverside ad on a YouTube video I was watching, and they said, are you still using Zoom to record your podcast episodes? Which is what I had intended to do. And having the ad explained to me that Riverside would be recording on both ends so that you get the best quality. Well, I figured anything that's going to have a built-in feature to give me the best quality when I don't know what I'm doing is probably something I want to go for. So far, I've done a few test conversations with a friend, uh, and I have this interview that you're about to listen to, and I feel like Riverside has a really good product that makes this really accessible. Also, in researching how I need to produce a podcast, I found out that um, hosting and distribution are things that you need to worry about. And so I found Podbean in that, and I feel like Podbean is going to make this a much easier venture for me to undertake. Additionally, Pexels for stock photos that I do use on social media as well as on Podbean, and then Pixabay for the intro music that you're going to hear. Uh, Canva for the logo design, which I'm sure when you see it, you'll know it's not a particularly striking thing. It really is just me (laughs) creating an image that has the name of the podcast. Uh, As far as the thresholds I mentioned earlier go, hiring people to compose music and design a logo is something that will happen if I find out that this is uh, a show that can build an audience worthy of the time and effort and resources involved in doing those things. I'd also like to give a shout out to my friend who may never hear this, Colin McClellan of Digital Wildcatters, uh, for the feedback and listening to me brain dump what it is that I want to do. I really appreciate you doing that. Welcome, Sophia R.C. Johnson. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing your article from the most recent issue of JBL, Kingship and Covenant, Reconsidering the Oath of David and Jonathan. Uh, Before we start, actually, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm finishing up a PhD in Hebrew Bible at the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Um, I'm currently speaking from Göttingen, Germany, where I'm a visiting scholar to learn from uh, the German tradition of biblical interpretation. 
Uh, I'm from Seattle originally. I love dogs. <laughs> uh, yeah, I work primarily on, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, the concept of covenant um, in biblical studies and kind of trying to renegotiate how we think of uh, that concept since it has come to dominate a lot of Hebrew Bible studies and also a, a lot of um, sort of Christian and Jewish uh, spirituality and the way that it, it impacts communities. Great. So real quick, because I want to start with your thesis, even though there's a thesis embedded that you're reconsidering in this article, I want to start with yours. So what I took to be your thesis uh, in this paper is through close analysis of the language and implications of the oath within its narrative setting in the early Israelite succession, I will argue that David and Jonathan's covenant bond instantiates not fictive kinship, but rather political allegiance in anticipation of the divine establishment of the Davidic dynasty. So if you want to start there, that's great. But if you want to take a few steps back and talk about what you're reevaluating, it's up to you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a, the, the article is focusing on a particular example of covenant in the Hebrew Bible. But what I'm kind of trying to do with the article is also do what we tend to call metacriticism, which is talking about the ways in which biblical studies operate, the sorts of assumptions that we make, the systems that we're working with, the terms that we use. Um, in particular, in the article, um, my sort of the primary person that I am arguing with, the interlocutor, um, is a scholar named Frank Moore Cross, who uh, was extremely influential in biblical studies, especially sort of Hebrew Bible and um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were uh, a huge, hugely impacted the study of the Hebrew Bible in the sort of late 20th and early 21st century. Um, and he, in 1998, he published an essay called uh, Kinship, and covenant in ancient Israel, in which he laid forward sort of a model for how we how we can understand covenant in the context of ancient Israel, um, which was that covenant uh, is meant to create fictive kinship relationships. So basically, where there was not a relationship before, it's trying to make like a family bond. Um, and he's arguing this based on uh, a long tradition of anthropology and sociology that came from the 19th and 20th century, where um, famous scholars like William Robertson Smith, um, who called themselves Orientalists, uh, would go to the Middle East, usually to Arabia, and they would study people like the Bedouin tribes. Uh, and they would say, oh, this must be how the ancient Israelites lived like this is we have an insight into what their life was like. Um, and so Cross uses a lot of uh, the sort of anthropo anthropological observations from um, William Robertson Smith and, and uh, other Orientalists from this time period to make assertions about how social relations relationships work in ancient Israel. Um, however, as you can probably tell just by the term Orientalist, uh, a lot of these observations were made from the standpoint of white men going to the Middle East, uh, a lot of times sort of searching out resources for the British Empire in particular, 
And so the way that they articulate these observations, the sort of framework that they're working in is that uh, the Bedouins uh, and other people native to the Middle East, the Near East, uh, are less than them. Um, part of the reason why they think they can look at the Bedouins and see ancient Israel is because they assumed that the Bedouins had not progressed at all uh, for, you know, thousands of years, that they were essentially stuck uh, in um, sort of arrested development. Um, and so a lot of the assertions that they're making, so a lot of, a lot of the assertions that Frank Moore Cross is working with, um, assume that kinship has to be the basis for all social uh, organization and social relations because uh, they couldn't have possibly conceived of social relations in any other way. They just weren't, weren't able to because they were primitive, uh, so to speak. Uh, again, these are uh, assertions that were very common in the sort of 19th and 20th, early 20th century. Um, and now, upon the sort of, you know, reflection and uh, uh, bringing in the voices of people from the Middle East, we realize that, that that's a really terrible way to look at it because it's making uh, assumptions about somebody else um, that we don't, you know, we know are not true of ourselves. Um, and so in trying to reevaluate how those assumptions play into the, the conception of covenant in particular, there are lots of places in Cross's essay and in his work where um, he makes similar assumptions about how covenant has to be the basis for all uh, ancient Israelite civilization and social organization because um, it has to be a merging of these kinship groups because there's no other way that they could have possibly conceived of these social relations. Um, and so part of what I'm trying to do is uh, show that not only is that research kind of harmful for how we talk about um, ancient people, but also, you know, the people who are descended from those ancient groups, people who are in the Middle East, uh, the Jewish people, etc. But uh, I think it also, because they're making all of these assumptions, it really obscures a lot of things that we see in the text, in the, the text of the Hebrew Bible itself, because those assumptions about what covenant is doing um, and what uh, that it has to be in terms of kinship relations um, and all these sorts of things. So one of the things that I was trying to do with the example of the oath between David and Jonathan, which we find in 1 Samuel chapter 20, um, is reevaluate the text, um, paying close attention to the context of the narrative that the story kind of sets itself up in. So instead of saying, okay, I see the word covenant or covenant is associated with this passage, I know immediately what's going on because I have this model in my head that it always means kinship relations because couldn't possibly be any other way. Um, I'm trying to come to it kind of on its own terms. Um, and so that's why in the thesis in particular, I mention kind of revisiting the passage in the context of the early Israelite succession. Because it is, uh, you know, a lot of the passages in Samuel, they're talking about uh, how the monarchy was run, how the monarchy came about, how the monarchy declined, and all of these sorts of things. So there's a huge concern um, for politics. That doesn't mean that there's no 
uh, sort of interpersonal element to it. Um, just that I think we have to, uh, yeah, we, we, we have to reassess whether we are bringing things into the passage that aren't actually there. Great. So that is a great place to start because one of the things you begin with is talking about how cross is, is trying to create like a shorthand, uh, a simple understanding of what covenant is. So what would you replace just as a shorthand? How should we understand covenant as we're going in and what specifically are the components that you base that on? So I actually, part of uh, the reason why I think we need to be careful of the approaches, I don't think we should have a shorthand. Um, I think that in every passage, we kind of have to reevaluate and, and um, look at how it's being used, what the sort of relationship is. I think at a very, very basic level, we can say, okay, we know that covenant seems like some sort of agreement. Um, it, in a lot of biblical scholarship, there used to be this sort of dichotomy where um, in English language and Anglo-American, sort of England and American circles, they defined um, covenant as formalizing a relationship. And um, in German or European circles, they said, no, 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 it's a, it's a bond. It's creating a bond or an agreement, an obligation. Um, but I think that those are really a false dichotomy uh, because you can't have an obligation or a bond without a relationship and you can't have a relationship without any sort of expectation of, of what's going on in that relationship even if it is like you know we're just going to be nice to each other and that's the only expectation uh, you know uh, so i think one of the things um that the the other sort of thing that i want to draw attention to in the article is um we know that lots and lots of biblical texts over the years were edited and uh, expanded um, and sort of rearranged and all these sorts of things. I think that's also a really important aspect of the text to kind of pay attention to um, because it could be that uh, besides, you know, also thinking about things like um, different texts in the Bible that use covenant are wildly different genres. They're coming from wildly different perspectives, but they also could be coming from wildly different times. Um, and as we know, concepts change radically over time. Um, so I think in Samuel in particular, um, because we see lots of evidence of this sort of editorial activity, um, it's really important to, to pay attention how the text itself is using or referring to the word covenant in its context. Um, so we're not just saying it's the same in every place. But yeah, so essentially thinking about some sort of agreement or some sort of bond or relationship, um, but really allowing the text to, to speak for itself and in figuring out how we define that and understand that. I think with regard to the the bond or agreement, expectations, things like that, it's pretty simple to read even even in NRSV or something and, and see, okay, well, David as a character and Jonathan as a character, these are pretty obvious motivations. But how would you how would you help us understand a little bit better what some of those editorial decisions might be from a possible later, I don't know, community audience? 
you're the expert. I'm not really sure how to, how to frame <laughs> yeah, that. Absolutely. So especially if we're thinking about Samuel, um, because it is the text that really pictures the history of Israelites monarchy. And in a sense, it's, it's considered Israel's sort of golden age, especially under David. Um, and it's, so it's, uh, a, a cherished history of the community and understanding, um, their, where they come from, their own traditions. Um, but it also plays a huge role in expectations for, um, you know, leader when the, the Israelite people are taken into exile, they're scattered throughout the, uh, ancient Near East, uh, because their lands are conquered, but eventually they are looking to go back and eventually they do go back. Um, and so these texts also play um, a, a sort of visionary role in saying if we were to go back, if we were to kind of take control of our land again and reestablish a monarchy, what would that look like? Um, what sort of things should we be expecting? What works well and what, what doesn't work well? Um, and so in a way, this narrative um, is also a, a reflection of people sort of grappling with um, political mistakes uh, that are made or relationships between different sort of cultural ethnic groups in the ancient Near East. Um, in Samuel, for example, we see uh, a lot of places where um, and we can tell um, things sort of suits, um, signs of editorial activity often come through things like um, a verse that is repeated um, and you kind of think, uh, if it's something like, and David came to this place, and you're like, I thought David was already there. Um, so we can tell through little little inconsistencies or little repetitions, um, or something, if there's a, a sort of comment that seems tacked on to the end of something, uh, a sort of fleeting observation that doesn't seem to be, it, it seems sort of out of place. Um, and in Samuel, for example, we see a lot of those um, sort of editorial editions commenting on things like the role of religion uh, in the monarchy. So how faithful is the king to their god, uh, to Adonai? Um, or how faithful uh, are you know the people around them in guiding them in uh, the way of the law of Moses, which is, uh, you know, also part of the corpus of the, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and also uh, little comments about uh, whether that, that characterize rulers as good or bad. Um, it, we, we have very little direct commentary from a sort of narrative perspective, but we do have little things that are added that um, maybe, maybe uh, expand on some of their activity or say they did do, they did do this and they didn't do that. So a lot of those are navigating um, not only how they understand their own history and what's happened in the past, but also um, trying to lay out for the future what an ideal kingship might look like um, and uh, how we should expect that to come about or maybe it won't come about at all and so then we're we're trying to um, reframe the history uh, more in terms of how do we understand our identity if we're not a monarchy uh, and so highlighting those different parts um, yeah I think that that's uh, a lot of what we should have in mind when we're 
looking at the editorial activity is is negotiating cultural identity, um, but also sort of political and religious vision for the future. I, I think the idea that you bring up of kind of imposing our ideas. So I being someone who lives in contemporary democratic Republican United States, and that's my understanding of politics and you being the Western civilization globetrotter that you are just kind of experiencing a whole lot of things. I, I don't think until I started reading this paper and going back in and rereading some of the story that I, I think I assumed that some of the succession components of this were a little bit more nailed down because I thought I knew what monarchy was. But then I remembered, well, the way that Saul was selected really doesn't look anything like what I understand royalty to be. So is is there any component of that? Because that got a little bit confusing. Like, wait, hold on. Is it something we should just assume that Jonathan would necessarily succeed his father? Or is that a thing that we're seeing that's a later editorial addition and assumption that's kind of because they know there's a Davidic line coming and they're maybe legitimizing it for all kinds of political or theological reasons? Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, I, I think it's something we need to be more aware of when we're reading these texts is um, especially, you know, we have we have lots of texts describing um, the political uh, uh, events of big empires like the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire. Um, but really, the, the only text we have uh, about these sort of smaller kingdoms like Israel and Judah is the Hebrew Bible. And as we said, it, a lot of times it's, it's edited with specific intentions in mind. Um, so we there there are a lot of examples um, in the ancient Near East that show uh, that the succession usually is expected to go to the to the eldest son, but as you said, it's not guaranteed. Um, and in fact, in order to kind of claim that, uh, there has to be a lot of sort of political no negotiation. Um, oftentimes, what would happen is an ancient Near Eastern king would um, identify a crown prince. Um, and he was the one who was sort of expected to go. It may be the oldest. It may, for other reasons, uh, like if the eldest son has a falling out with the king, it may go to another son. What we see as you bring up um, with Solomon uh, is that uh, he, he was not necessarily the go-to choice because he was not the oldest son. Um, but he was also, at least from the stories we have, uh, it, it has a... Has a you know, a little bit of an iffy sort of heritage, right? Um, with the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, so what really has to happen is that Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan um, go to David and say, we really, you know, you said he would be king. And so you really have to, we really have to fight for him to be king um, because his brother is making himself king instead. Um, so it's really unclear whether David, for example, had picked, had identified a crown prince, or um, if Bathsheba and Nathan are kind of saying to stick, because we know at that point David is senile, essentially. He's very, very old and unable to even take care of himself. So are they saying, oh, David, you said he would be the king. 
in a way that's sort of suggesting that maybe his memory isn't what it used to be and they're sort of creating a memory for him um, in that sense or if they are actually legitimately reminding him of something that David said um, we just don't know on uh, on that account um, it seems that in the story surrounding Jonathan and Saul um, because there are other places where I, I think it, it's even later in chapter 20 um, Saul says uh, basically like why are you why are you siding with David because he will take the kingdom away from you so it seems like um, at least at one point in the composition of the narrative there was an assumption that Jonathan was identified as a sort of crown prince um, or or something like that. It was assumed that he was going to take over the kingdom. Uh, but again, uh, as you brought up, because there are different voices at different points in the narrative, um, and because we have very little data about this, um, it's hard to say for sure if we can expect monarchy to work in a um, uh, yeah in a, in a direct succession in the way that it would, for example, here in the West. But there is, it seems like in the narrative, at least, there is some sort of assumption um, that at least in this case, Jonathan, uh, Saul wants Jonathan to take over the throne. Whether or not that's a realistic expectation is kind of a different question. I, I'm thinking back even farther in the story, too. And I, I always picture Samuel as uh, Leonard Nimoy because Leonard Nimoy <laughs> played him in a movie that they made, like TNT made back in the 90s. Um, but Samuel has these objections to royal, like to a royal line at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and separating from the judges period to now. So is it almost kind of like Saul insisting that his line be the line that's followed is undermining uh, Israel's uh, call to be subservient to God and therefore David is replacing him. But then I'm also kind of wondering, there's a mention uh, in your paper, Klaus Peter Adam mm -hmm. mentions that there's, uh, let me, sorry, let me. Um, so the translation of the German, I believe is, does not describe the relationship between individuals, but the alliance between states. How, how much is that? I mean, you, you seemed a little circumspect about that, not necessarily rejecting it out of hand, but you didn't seem all that eager to fully commit to the idea that that's exactly what's happening here. Is it that and something else? Or how would you characterize that? Well, I think a big part of this, and this also plays into the question of uh, expectation of politics. And for example, Samuel's very sort of anti-monarchic um, speech is a balance between what um, is being said for the purpose of, again, kind of dealing with current or future political visions of the community and what is actually a sort of realistic expectation or realistic portrayal of how things happened or would have worked during that time period. Um, so I think with Klaus Peter Adams, I, I, I think the, the story has a level of sort of metaphor to it um, where uh, David and Jonathan sort of represent Judah and Israel and the relationship uh, that it, that they come to have of the, the sort of um, picture of them as the united Israel, these two kingdoms coming together to be, quote, united Israel. Um, however, I, I also want to be sensitive to the narrative 
um, in that David and Jonathan aren't just sort of copy-paste straightforward Judah Israel. They are also characters who represent their sort of own agencies and own relationships. Um, and there's a huge tradition connected to David as a person and not just Jude, uh, not just David as Judah. Um, and so I think that's why, uh, like I, I like, um, Adam's, uh, sort of observation that these politics are at play because David is throughout Samuel identified, um, with Judah. Judah is the first to crown him king. Um, and then it's only later that Israel also comes un under his rule. Um, but, uh, I also want us to be able to let the narrative kind of play out in its own way. Um, so that we can have a story about David and Jonathan having an oath, which has significance for, for example, for the for the Davidic and Salid lines, um, and the descendants who uh, from those two uh, individuals are those two figureheads, um, as well as sort of thinking about the relationship between states. Um, but th this also plays into, like like you said, uh, Samuel very anti-monarchic. Um, speech, which I think is a reflection of later um, attitudes when the Israelite people are in captivity or they're looking they're looking forward to returning um, to their land, um, which is that it seems pretty unlikely that monarchy ever will be, you know, reinstated. Um, it is eventually, you know, we do have the Hasmonean kings eventually. But um, even when the Jewish people end up going back to uh, the the land, they're a, a basically a Persian client state, so they don't have full political autonomy. Um, it's not the same as it as it you know uh, as the picture of David as a sort of triumphant himself, sort of um, an emperor like going out and conquering lands and conquering other people. Um, but that. Uh, at a certain point, I think people start to realize that that's not going to happen anytime soon, at least. Um, so I think that's part of what's going on in the, the anti-monarchic speech. Um, and also kind of why I want to focus on David and Jonathan as, as um, people in the, like, characters in the narrative. Um, because we see through a in a development of the text, through this editorial activity, also less of a focus on the sort of Davidic line as a kingship, um, but then eventually it becomes sort of a, a Davidic leader. Um, and Samuel's speech talks, as you said, about sort of being subservient to God and looking to God. And this sort of Davidic leader um, evolves into a sort of a religious leader, um, maybe a priest, maybe a prophet. Um, but someone who can lead both politically and religiously. And that's much more what we see in books like Ezra and Nehemiah. When they go back to the land, um, you know, there are, there are Persian governors over the land, but Ezra and Nehemiah are priests and scribes. Um, and so they're much more interested in the sort of temple complex and how that forms the state rather than, uh, you know, a kingship, uh, which may or may not have been allowed uh, under a sort of Persian, uh, Persian occupation like that. So, I, again, I think it's it's part of the different levels of the text, um, and there are always going to be different elements that we have to pay attention to and decide when it's important to draw out 
these sort of um, political visions, political metaphors, or pay attention to the story as actually a narrative. Uh, because it is, the authors have chosen to, to tell these stories as stories, um, and not just as, you know, political treatises or other things like that. Which actually leads to a thing that 20 years ago when I started kind of dabbling in reading biblical studies, because I'm almost 40, so I can have done that. Um, I think one of the things that I was disabused of was the idea that it's just like uh, there's some kind of dictation and somebody sitting down with scrolls or tablets or vellum or whatever, and they're, and they're writing it down immediately. So the idea that things were circulating uh, in oral tradition and then hearing people or reading people kind of explain how that oral tradition was transmitted and then how it transitioned into text. So there's, I, I kind of have, I kind of like to hear your understanding of that and what evidence you have of maybe how things were transmitted with the text we're looking at here, but then also the text itself. When would you assess the authorship? What is kind of the mainstream? And are those the same thing? I know that's a lot, but I like to let you, I just kind of like to mute my mic and let you talk for a while. So yeah, uh, yeah orality and then the text. Right. Go. Uh, well, uh, this is probably, so the, the orality versus textual nature and um, especially kind of dating and history of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the transmission history of the text are probably the most contentious portions of biblical studies, especially in Hebrew Bible. So go on. <laughs> um, the problem is we just do not have a lot of good evidence um, because the, the best manuscripts we have of the Hebrew Bible are from the medieval period. Um, and, you know, thankfully with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that gave us a lot of insight into a lot of things much closer to the time uh, of their composition and these sorts of things. But um, we, uh, unlike, for example, with other ancient Near Eastern texts, which um, were, you know, chiseled, the cuneiform chiseled into tablets of, or um, made, you know, pressed into clay tablets and then fired, um, those have survived a very long time, um, you know, thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and so we can have evidence from those periods to understand exactly how this sort of textual and oral um, relationship and the transmission of these texts happen. We don't have that. Um, we have, you know, some uh, basically very fragmentary bits of pottery that have writing on them. Um, we have some um, inscriptions that have been found. Um, like there is, uh, there are some amulets that were found that were pressed bronze with um, Paleo Hebrew, which is um, a Hebrew in the script, uh, sort of during the biblical period. Um, but it, I want to start by saying we really don't know, uh, and so a lot of uh, what I can say is really theoretical and conjectural. Um, that being said. Uh, I think uh, while orality plays a huge role in how we understand how a lot of these texts, a, a lot of these stories, I should say, took shape, um, the sort of characters that were created, the character of David, the character of Saul, 
um, we don't know a lot of how that translated into the texts that we have. Um, there have been arguments that um, a lot of the poetry, especially, you know, psalms and those sorts of things, which were likely sung as songs, uh, make it's a lot easier to understand um, the sort of oral nature of those. Um, and even some of the uh, poetry that is um, inserted into the narrative text of the Hebrew Bible. So thinking of things like Miriam's song, the song of the sea, um, or um, Deborah's song, um, a lot of those because they have a sort of more poetic nature, they could have an oral background to them. Um, but we just don't know how that translated into, into texts. Um, so when it comes down to the, the texts that we, what we know of the history of uh, the texts that come down to us, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that um, Samuel, for example, uh, survived in multiple different versions simultaneously. Um, so there are different shapes to how the story looked, how the story worked. Um, there are uh, there are manuscripts in uh, the collection of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in this community in Qumran in the Judean desert, um, where there are whole portions of Samuel missing, um, or I say missing, they that are not represented in the, the texts that come down to us in the medieval tradition, which we call the Masoretic tradition. Um, so uh, it's very clear that these texts that, that scribes um, during that period um, not only were okay with a sort of fluidity in the text, but they actually valued it. Um, and they kept uh, a multiplicity of these different versions, um, perhaps at, in a way, in a sort of conservative mindset of we want to conserve as many different versions and as much text as we can, um, or just so that they can have they could have different versions to play with, to work with as they are shaping um, this tradition and the stories that are told. Um, so that combined with the editorial activity that we find in the texts suggests to us that they were rewritten and um, recomposed and uh, you know added to and and different chunks of the text were moved around uh, for. A long time. Um, and uh, as far as dating the text goes, uh, especially in Samuel, we have, uh, there are other parts of the Hebrew Bible, um, like uh, Chronicles, for example, where they make specific reference to historical events that we have from other ancient Near Eastern sources outside the Bible. So we can kind of historically um, uh, reliably sort of mark uh, you know, even just a, a breadth of time. It was probably composed in this sort of breadth of time. Uh, but Samuel is, is um, quite tricky because there are very few indicators like that, sort of historical indicators. Um, there are certain uh, verses in Samuel that indicate um, it was written a long time after the events that it um, it, it reports, that it, it uh, gives a story to, because it will say things like, back in those days, this is how that was done, or back in those days, this is what the significance of this piece of clothing or this ritual was. Um, so it's speaking to an audience that is unfamiliar 
with the the sort of culture that it's it's um yeah that it, that it's illustrating um how far away is the big question um i think because of the, the we we talked about how a lot of these especially this sort of editorial activity seems to address that um the community is changing the community is changing its expectations for the future um it's sort of political, religious, and social attitudes. Um, for example, attitudes towards people who are outside of quote unquote Israel or um, people uh, or, or different political organizations or, or structures. Um, it seems like uh, for sure, probably some of the oldest parts of the text were composed or um, collated, you know, collected into this grand story sometime during the exile, sometime when they were outside of the land. Um, probably, uh, in a, in a, in an effort to preserve Israelite identity or to cast an identity of what they wanted to preserve, what they wanted to be, um, you know, how they wanted to be identified and set apart from all of the other peoples that they were suddenly surrounded with. Um, and also what they wanted to, uh, again, what they wanted their uh, sort of ideal kingdom to look like when they got back and were able to work on those sorts of things. Um, up until very recently, I would say there was a large portion, especially, again, there t for different um, sort of cultural reasons, uh, there has been a, a huge split in the field between sort of English language scholarship in America and England and uh, other places, other countries associated that are influenced by their scholarship, and then German language and sort of continental European opinions. Um, uh, but between both of them, up until recently, there were some people who said there's probably some grain of the text that goes back to the monarchic period itself. Um, uh, Anglo-American scholars would say back to the time of Solomon, even, um, and that the story of David was written um, as a way to legitimize Solomon's rule. Um, I think European scholarship has been a bit more skeptical about that, um, just because that's a really long time uh, for the sort of text and stories to survive. Um, and since they, as you mentioned, there are these sort of some anti-monarchic undertones, um, it seems a little weird for that to happen when there was an active monarchy, uh, when a king could just as easily kind of say, hey, you can't say that to me. Um, I think fewer and fewer people are, uh, are seeing evidence for the stories, um, during certainly not during Solomon's time, I would say maybe some in, in the states would still claim that. Um, but I think the earliest the majority of you would say is probably during the um, during the time of uh, Josiah or Hezekiah. Um, so we're talking sort of late monarchic period, um, perhaps after the fall of uh, after the fall of Israel, um, and Judah is trying to kind of consolidate a lot of these stories um, in an effort to uh, lay claim to the land of Israel. 
and say, oh, you know, we were originally part of the same kingdom, Judah and Israel. So like all of you people, all of your land, all of your resources, um, we know the monarchy of Israel has fallen, but you can just come to us because we are all originally one big happy family. Um, and so I think that's probably the, the earliest we would um, date some of these texts or the core of some of these texts is during the sort of late monarchic period. Um, but there are also continually, especially in Europe, people who are pushing to say um, uh, that these texts, I mean, were probably, um, that, that probably only came into uh, uh, prominence much later, like even after the exile. Uh, I don't know if anyone say they were, would say they were, they were purely composed after the exile, but because um, during that later period is when we saw this huge boom in um, scribal activity and writing, especially because, uh, you know, it, the Jewish people had come into contact with the scribal communities in these other communities, these other um, places that they were exposed to in the diaspora, um, which is just to say the Jewish people outside of um, the land that they would traditionally consider their, the the monarchic land uh, of David, etc. Um, so yeah, this just to say there, there's sort of a huge swath, a huge variety of opinions. Um, but I would say, uh, I think I would feel comfortable saying probably, um, yeah, composed during the exilic period, <laughs> even to say the, the earliest during the monarchic period um, feels difficult to prove to me um, because there is so much commentary on the monarchy, which seems um, hard to do if you're under the eye of the monarch, but I think a lot of it comes down to the distance from the monarchic reality and being able to comment on it from that distance. I, I know you're, I know you're not wanting to overcommit too hard. And that's one of the reasons I want to sit down and talk to academics about these things is you guys are trying to parse as much of this stuff out and there are it's not just your point of view but you're dealing with so many other points of view that are in your immediate circle but then people who are over here across the atlantic and who knows what else is out there and that you know certainly i don't and the kind of audience that i'm hoping to build we're we're not experts on this so it's listening to experts in their area of expertise so i know uh, we're getting close to the time that you're going to need to go. Uh, <clears throat> it seems like ultimately what you're saying in this article and in the the, the way that you're answering questions is l let's not boil things down too much. Yeah, it's exactly. nice to have a shorthand, but we can't always do that. That's a luxury. <laughs> let's treat these texts with respect. Let's try to approach them with respect for the people who wrote them, for the communities who observed them. Uh, and give them their due. Does that does that seem fair? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, as you brought up with the, the sort of political systems, not always assuming that we understand how something works. Um, even when we have lots of evidence from the ancient Near East, like with like with kingship, we have um, you know Assyrian traditions that say, "Ah, oh, yes, I'm going to identify my." Um, eldest son is the crown prince, but maybe that wasn't the tradition in 
Israel or Judah. We just don't know. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of um, scholars who have very strong opinions and will say things very strongly. Um, and I always want to inject a little bit of um, humility uh, and a, a little bit of, um, I don't know if suspicion is the right word, but caution maybe um, in recognizing that even though this text has meant so much and has, um, you, you know, uh, provided resources for so many religious, spiritual faith communities over the years, um, and indeed uh, interpretations of the text have, have been hugely influential in the history and politics of uh, Europe, America, etc. Um, but it's also very a, a very foreign text to us. It's very distant, both um in time in distance and in culture so uh bearing that in mind when we go to it uh i think in letting it speak uh on its own terms as far as we can understand those terms is it uh, an important position in reading the text well i want to thank you so much for being our first interview uh i didn't prep you for this question because i kind of wanted to get uh, get this cold um and you can list as many or as few things as you want. What is out there in biblical studies that you think people should go look for? As far as like resources or scholars or what's what's new? What's what's yeah? What's a, a scholar that you particularly <laughs> like? Is there a book that's out there right now that you're like, this is the thing that people need to read? They'll get a really good understanding at any level of competence. Yes. Um. So I think my primary um, uh, recommendation would be there is a, a book that came out this last year by Jonathan Adler, um, and I think it, it's called something like the 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 origins of ancient Israel or um, rediscovering the origins of ancient Israel, something like that. Um, but what it does is uh, really approaches the the archaeological evidence and the sort of topographic evidence and these sorts of things that we have um, for the interpretation and the life of the text um, in um, uh, the time before the this sort of second temple period um and the the periods leading up to that uh in in uh the land of the that that israel and judah would have inhabited um and one of the, he makes jonathan adler makes a, a huge argument for i think another part of um the sort of discussion of the text that's often left out which is we're assuming that everyone is reading these texts as readily as we read the Bible or as readily as we have access to the Bible. Um, and uh, his book really shows that there wasn't wide knowledge of the Torah um, until very late, um, like uh, during the Hasmonean period. Um, and so the when we're talking about these texts and we're talking about the sort of political and social and cultural um, commentary that they're making, this is really among scribes and a sort of, um, you know, literate elite. Um, it wasn't among a ton of people. Um, and so I think that that also gives a good perspective on these texts when we come to them and who their primary audience was. Um, they were probably, I, I think also um, reading about uh, 
collections of Jewish texts that we have. Um, for example, uh, there is a, a, a colony of a Jewish diaspora community in um, Elef Elef Elephantine um, in Egypt. Um, and looking at those texts because they also have a very different understanding um, of the Torah than uh, a lot of the traditions that come up um, in, uh, you know, the Levant. Uh, and so understanding that this is, that the, the opinions and the perspectives that we get in the Hebrew Bible are one community and sort of one or maybe a couple of different communities that are in conversation with each other, uh, that there are different perspectives. Um, so I think, yeah, Jonathan Adler's book, um, reading about the texts that we have from the Elephantine community, the Elephantine papyri, um, uh, is a great start. Um, but also, I think uh, when we're doing biblical studies, it's uh, I also want to acknowledge that for a long time, the scholarship has been very white. <laughs> it's also been very male. Um, and it's been very sort of Western dominated. Um, and what we've found um, now that more and more sort of diverse voices from different backgrounds and perspectives are speaking out, they're noticing things in a text that our sort of white Western um, perspective never would have, uh, especially, uh, you know, thinking about African perspectives, Middle Eastern perspectives. Um, uh, but also different, what, what we sort of call contextual approaches. Um, so approaches from Latinx scholar, scholars, from queer scholars, um, from womanist scholars, which is black women. Um, they, uh, I think, give us uh, lots of insights um, into, into how the text um, is understood in the embodied communities that pick it up after the ancient period, but oftentimes the sort of social dynamics that that um, go undetected uh, in the text itself, um, especially thinking about feminist perspectives that help us understand the agency of women in these narratives and what they represent um, in the ancient context um, and how uh, you know, perspectives from Africa and the Middle East and how it helps us understand things like agrarian economy and the relationship between those who held power over the land and those who worked it and all these sorts of things. Um, so I'm increasingly thankful for those diverse perspectives. Um, and I think especially um, if we're trying to understand the Hebrew Bible and it's sort of wide breadth because it itself it's not only these texts that are, you know, edited a lot over um, many centuries, but also just a huge breadth of texts, different genres, um, uh, different perspectives. Uh, and so it only feels right that we include voices from, you know, that wide, uh, wide diversity and wide variety of, of perspectives to help us understand these texts. Um, so I would also say people who are getting into it, uh, try to also find books from uh, scholars who are not white. <laughs> um, and uh, Yeah, why not? That's, that's a significant women. portion of the global population. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where can people follow your work? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Let's Go Sojo, um, which is uh, where I post a lot of my work, a lot of my articles and blog posts and things. It's the, the most consistent place you can follow me. Um, 
but also I'm hoping to, um, uh, I, I have some articles out, as you said, in the Journal of Biblical uh, Literature, also in the Journal of the Bible and its reception that talks a little bit more about how these texts, and especially how covenant, interpretations of covenant have influenced politics in Europe and America um, over the last, you know, many centuries. Um, but uh, yeah, I think those are those are the biggest biggest places for now. Uh, and hopefully, now that the um, thesis is done, um, congratulations! By the way. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, now that it's done, uh, all things being well, hopefully, looking out for a book in the next few years as well. Well, I appreciate you being the inaugural interview uh, for this podcast. And when that book is finished. I will be buying it, and I will be bugging you to sit down again. So <laughs> thank you so much, Sophia oh, R.C. Johnson. I can't overstate how grateful I am that Sophia R.C. Johnson sat down with me. I look forward to future content being produced with her, reading more things that she's written, learning more about the Hebrew Bible from her. Uh, anyone else who has a suggestion if they want to sit down and talk to me or if you know of someone that you think would be good on this podcast who could explain something that the general public just doesn't really get access to because it's hidden away in the academy please hit me up on at means podcast or it means what it means at gmail.com we're working on greater web presence with a website and facebook and other social media platforms but we're starting where we're starting so please stick with us i expect that we're going to be able to do more and better things thank you so much for listening